Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall and I'd like to welcome you to a special presentation. It's a part of our self-empowerment series designed to hopefully motivate and inspire you to have the tools necessary to make constructive and positive change in your life. The topic today, one that I feel a lot of people would benefit from, and that is the courage to connect with the essential needs of life. Now what do I mean? Let's be very specific. How many times have you had a desire here but didn't know what to do with it? Didn't know how to fulfill it? We all have ideas, right? We all have dreams and aspirations and we want to have something happen. Generally, it's something that involves other people like love or career. But then we get started and we find that every day we're in routines and these routines kind of get us some things that we find are important, but not the real important things, not, not the things that allow us to kind of slow down and say, wow, this feels good. And then we're hit with all kinds of problems and every day is a series of crises, minor or major. That doesn't make it bad. That does mean that those crises are an opportunity for us to evaluate ourselves. Now, how you respond to these crises, how you respond to everyday challenges, is going to be directly related to the tools you were given for how to respond. So let's say you just keep doing the same thing over and over again and you don't have a different outcome. Same outcome. You keep running here and there and there and there and asking questions and seeking answers from people, seeking feedback from people, talking over and over about the same problem ad, ad nauseum. But nothing fundamentally changes. And that's because, more often than not, we are adapting to problems rather than transforming them. Our whole mindset is one of adaptation, and for good reason, because society can control adaptive behavior. As you overeat, you get a larger clothes size. As you get stressed, you take a tranquilizer or a drug or watch television. As we get lonely, we try to connect with people. So these are adaptive, but they're not going to change anything. I don't care how many experiences you have. I don't care how many people you're with. If you're not looking at how to transform yourself to match your real needs, these are just meaningless experiences. And that's why so often life becomes like one big ball of candy cotton. It might smell good and taste good, but there's nothing there. It evaporates and just like a sugar rush. So then we have to pull back and say, okay, how can I really ask the question that's going to give me the answer I want? By knowing the question you need to ask. It's amazing how seldom people ask the appropriate question. If I knew that I could only ask you one question forever, do you think I'm going to ask you a superficial question? No. I'm going to ask, what is essential? What do I want? Because only do I ask for something and connect my energy to it, is it going to happen. Have you ever been in one of those days where the day just seems to have everything connect in a good way? 
It just, everything happens. I have days when I know that every time I pick up the phone, something good's going to happen because of that phone call. And other days, you don't want to get out of bed because just nothing seems to be going right that day. I just, one challenge after another. It's all about energy. Energy becomes real to you when you create the image of what you want that energy to do. But we don't think we have control over our lives. We feel helpless. In fact, most people seek security as a way of protecting themselves from all of the vagaries and, and, and things that can happen out there. Gated communities, that's big. People going into a gated community, that's security. You know, finding security in your work. Stay focused on your work. So it's just the work becomes your security. A relationship becomes just all entwined. So the relationship creates some security. People are afraid of this world. They don't like the new. Most people keep doing the same thing. They go to the same vacation spot. They go to the same restaurant. They go to the same place to bowl. They wear the same kind of clothes. They wear the same kind of hairdo. You can almost predict what they're going to say in a conversation because so little of what they share breaks that mold. And so what they really want, they're never going to ask for because they'll never believe that they can get it. How many times have you felt that you wanted to be someplace else, do something else, have a whole different sense of self, maybe in your mind visualized it, but truly didn't think it was going to happen, so you didn't put any energy behind it. For example, how many men first in this room have ever thought about doing something great as an athlete? Right? Like throwing the 100-yard football, right? Uh, or hitting the longest ball out of the park ever. We think about these things. What's to prevent you from doing that? Well, adapt. Adapt. I'm too old, I'm not, I'm out of shape, uh, you know, I'm not as good as the guys out there, there's limitations. And Bannister, the miler, said that, and then he said, no, I want to break the four-minute mile. And he did. And right after he did, boom, 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 everyone else did too. They were waiting for someone to transform a limitation. But it's in the transformation that we break free of the limitation. And once you break free of the limitation, then suddenly you have a whole different question you'd ask because you're not afraid of the outcome, not afraid of the answer. If I don't fear what you're going to tell me, I'm going to tell you what I really want. If I don't fear that you're going to judge me for being stupid or wrong, then I'll have the courage to say, this is who I am, this is what I want. But then again, adaptation means better not say anything that's going to get you into trouble, better not say anything that's going to make you seem weird, better not say anything that's going to seem like you're, you know, not normal like other people. And so we then think, okay, I won't say what I really want, I'll say what will get me accepted. And so then we have kind of consensus of people accepting things, even if it's wrong. Even if we said, all right, let's go have a good meal and we eat a fast food meal with french fries, hamburgers, hot dogs, pizzas, no one's going to get up and say, you know, this is not a good meal. This is not honoring our body. The energy in this food is not going to connect in a healthy way with the energy of our cells. They're incompatible. They're opposites. 
And when you're trying to blend opposites, you're going to create chaos. Why create chaos? What if you wanted from a person that which best mirrored the best that you are as a human being? What if you asked for that? What if you felt that was a legitimate point of negotiation? How few relationships we'd have. So what we do, we're afraid to ask for that because we're afraid that the other person would feel somehow that we're asking them to be like them or to make changes and they don't want it to be changed and so you have such minimal compatibility compared to ultimate fulfillment. Why not say in a relationship, I only want the best that I am and I only want the best that you are? Because if I got to suddenly have the worst that you are come into the best that I am, that means I have to tolerate it. I have to accept it. I have to adapt to it. So if you're insensitive, if you yell at people, if you're discourteous, but I still gain something somewhere else in that relationship, now I got to balance. Okay, I didn't like this part of this person, but I did like this part, so now I got to balance the two. Who says? Balance is adaptation when it comes to balancing a positive with a negative. Balance, in the ideal sense, is balancing the best that you could be with the best that you've ever been. And then you're balancing two positives. Balancing the worst that you've been with who you are now, that's not balance. Because, hey, if you've been accepted for who you are and you've got a whole lot of wrong with you and no one's hassling you about it, then why grow? Why change? Adapt. And we do. We adapt to our pain, we adapt to our suffering, we adapt to our insecurity, we adapt to our indifference. And then one day we wake up and think, my God, I've, I've just adapted to everything. I walk down the streets, it's filthy, dirty, noisy, and I adapt to it. Recently I was in South Beach. And uh, I'm walking down the streets in South Beach. I walk down uh, Ocean Drive which is about 20 blocks long. And as I was walking down Ocean Drive, I noticed how clean the streets were, how positive the energy was, how people were smiling, high, 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 high. And the, the people were singing, and people were really out having fun with their meal. I mean, they, they, were, they were happy. And I just said, wow, just that morning, I had been in New York before I flew down, and I was walking down Amsterdam between 86th and 72nd and yelling and noise and no every high level intensity. You know, nobody was having fun. They were deep in intense conversation and dirt, smells, garbage. But they had adapted to it. It's like it didn't exist around them because they were so focused on that one point. And it's only when you get into a different environment that you start to appreciate what you've adapted to. I remember once I was, um, a couple years ago, I was out in Portland on a PBS tour, and the person driving me around pulled up to a traffic light. And they were fidgeting with the radio and the light turned. And I started to say something, and I'm watching, and I noticed in the window there are three cars behind us. 
and the light went right through and turned again. And then the person looked up, and I looked at them. They said, oh, you're from New York. <laughs> you're thinking those people are going to yell and beep their horn and scream and want to kill me? No. This is Portland. <laughs> you're not in New York anymore. And I thought, they're right. In New York, had it gone a whole light, that'd have been a shooting. <laughs> Someone would have been calling up an ambulance. Utter impatience. We adapt to it. We adapt to people's indifference and crudeness. And all over the world, people say, oh, we, we know where you're from. And if you're from New York, people know you because of the adaptive behavior, almost as a defense mechanism, rather than transforming that behavior or transforming an environment. Of all my friends in New York, not one has an apartment that feels like a home. They all feel like transient apartments. I don't ever see any of them or what they ideally could be in how they've designed their apartments. Small little boxes and they adapt to them. I'm, I walked by the Ansonia Hotel the other night. Beautiful hotel. Babe Ruth, LaGuardia, um, Caruso used to live there. And now they've taken those 13-room apartments, cut them up into small little apartments. People adapt. And then if you get now a two-bedroom for $3,000 on the Upper West Side renting, you think, that's good, and they've shrunk them. And we keep adapting and shrinking. And we don't say, why am I here? Are my real needs being met here? And we don't look into a relationship and say, why must I become my relationship? Why can't I simply decide what I want to share in a relationship and leave the rest of me be? Because right now, and we all know this, if you're in a relationship and if the relationship doesn't work, then you feel miserable and you feel like your life doesn't work. And with anxiety and problems, you feel all that tension and trauma and you internalize it. And then when you're not in a relationship, you feel like a failure and you feel what's wrong and you either project out of anger at the other person, which becomes a, a living energy, or you take it inside with self-doubt and loss and all that for what? For what? You're no longer in the moment to grow or be present. You're in the past with all that angst because we committed too much to something that should have been a third entity. A relationship should be two people sharing something that creates a third entity. But we don't. We go like this. And then start the adaptation and trying to change people or changing ourselves to accommodate and we don't like it. Why, what if we were just honest and we just said, this is who I am, this is what I'd like, this is what I'm willing to share. And someone can say, okay, well, I like that, don't like that, I can handle that, I can't handle that. We don't do that. We like to disguise all this with some romantic notion that somehow, you know, the the romance is what brings it together, but in the practical sense, there's a whole lot more than just romance in a relationship. And we don't look at the downside. Can we transform this crisis? Can we transform ourselves? How do we get this way? Simple. Let's go through some questions. 
to see why we're not transforming our crisis, our problems. We've adapted to them. We've adapted to working hard hours. We've adapted to multiple responsibilities. We've adapted to toxic environments. We have adapted to cluster and, and, and crowding. When there's wonderful ways of living that don't take a lot of money, but it does take the power to make a choice that is going to meet your authentic needs. How many of you do not have your authentic needs being met? That's about 98% of this audience. And yet it's not because you haven't tried, right? You've just tried in the wrong way in the wrong places. You've tried with the wrong mindset and the wrong tools. How'd that happen? Let's begin. The person that helped manufacture your thoughts also manufactured your limitations. We all begin as open, flexible, curious, wonderful, and innocent, and honest. And we could have stayed that way had we not adapted to being accepted and proving ourselves. And through the provings, we saw punishment and reward. Do what you're told, you're rewarded, don't, and you're punished. But what if what we were told to do wasn't in our best interest? What if it wasn't something that was authentic or real? How many times in life have you done things that you shouldn't have just because you wanted to be accepted? That's adaptation. So one of the things I'd like for you to do, and this will take time, but I'd like for you to go back into your life and look at all of the major points where what you were taught and you honored caused you a problem. Unless you connect those energies, you won't know where to disconnect the energy. In effect, you have to disconnect the energy of a learned behavior, a learned belief. You've got to separate yourself. Now, not all beliefs are bad or good. And even well-intentioned people who want to share their love and kindness with you could have given you the wrong beliefs. Where I grew up, you were taught never question authority. So even when people were abusing their authority, nobody said anything because nobody stood up. And even if you did stand up, you would have embarrassed other people for standing up and talking out because you weren't supposed to. So a lot of people ended up with very repressed lives because the authority figures had no check and balance, no accountability. Even today, think of all the crimes against humanity committed by people in positions of power and none of them are held accountable. Nobody's held accountable. Nobody, right? No matter what they do, there's no accountability because they're power. And we're not supposed to be talking about power because we're not connected to power. But if I had a question to ask people in power, I'd be asking different questions than I see people asking people in power. I wouldn't defer to them. I'd look at them just like any other person. And I'd say, I'd like an answer to this. So we're not even getting good answers because we're not asking good questions. And you've got to ask yourself the good question if you want a good answer. Don't be afraid of the outcome. So once I understand that I have a buddy and he's very insensitive to women and he says some very 
cruel things. And but he's a big guy. And uh, when you're six foot four and 240 pounds, and you got a real tough face, very few people are going to stand up to you. And so where we grew up in West Virginia, being sensitive to women, except for our mothers, was not considered you know, an important asset. Being tough, fighting a lot, showing people you had something, that was important. You could do it in athletics or you could do it in other ways. And not long ago, someone I know said, I can't be around this person. I'm, I'm, I'm splitting. And I said, hold on. If you leave now, you will have not learned any lesson. She, she said, what's the lesson? <laughs> you know, the guy calls me names. He's disrespectful. Well, there's nothing to learn here. I said, oh, there's a lot to learn. But you can't learn from your pain if you try to avoid pain. You can't learn from your crisis if you try to run from crisis. You can't learn from a problem if you don't want to look at it. So we bury, hide, disguise, avoid, and deny are the real problems in our lives, and we work on the superficial problems. As if working on something superficial will make a difference, and here it won't. I said, you write that person a letter and, and forgive them. I won't forgive them. Well, why don't you try writing it this way? Robert, I forgive you for being a sexist, misogynist person. I forgive you for all the abuse of a vulgar, condescending, or patronizing personality that you've exhibited. I forgive you for your insensitivity and your cruelty of how you've made other women in your presence feel. I forgive you for you thinking that your size has made you invincible. And she went through like 40 things then, and she gave it to him. And initially he got really angry. But then she stood up and she said, the next time you say anything, I'm going to be in your face like a mirror. And I'm going to remind you that everything that you are saying, I'm reflecting back. And it stunned him. And then they finally sit down and talk. And in this conversation, he said, gee, you're the first woman to say something. She said, I don't think so. You've had three wives. They've all left. The difference is they left in pain and feeling defeated and emotionally beaten up. And I would have just been another one of those women in your life, but I'm standing up to you because I think you're a coward. I think you're afraid to know what it is to be another human being. Have you ever once asked yourself, what is it like to be on the other end of what you're sharing? Would you say what you would say if you had to be the one receiving it? He said, no, I don't think so. Well, then why don't you think before you open that mouth of yours? And then he did. And from then till now, he's not said a single impolite thing. And he called me and he was confused. He said, you know something? I, all this, I don't know what's going on. I said, well, it's simple, Tom. We grew up in an environment where we were not given the respect of our peers. Highly competitive, top dog takes the bone, and here you have to look at your conditioning. 
You are merely a manifestation of all the mistakes made in our development. I'm not going to blame you for that, but I am asking you to go back now and think of all the mistakes you've made throughout your life when you talk and spoke inappropriately with people and not realizing you were merely speaking for every man who ever had anything to do with your, with your dysfunctional father and all the other men that we grew up with. What a mess. They didn't want you to end up like this, but how could you be anything but what you ended up when all you did was take and never question. You never questioned your values. You never questioned your beliefs. You never tried to deconstruct any of these things to see, should I keep these? Should I not? Is there some better way I can communicate? Can I use my heart instead of my fist? Can I extend love as an energy rather than anger? What do you think is going to happen? So, some woman stood up to you, had the courage to say, treat me with respect. I deserve it. And where you grew up in West Virginia, hey, nobody respected women. So an entire culture of this kind of tough attitude so all you did is adapt to all the wrong behavior. That doesn't mean that he's all wrong, because we're combinations of rights and wrongs. We're combinations of constructive and destructive. We're combinations of good and bad. We have all kinds of energies in us, all kinds of influence. The idea is to separate out what we want to be and what we don't want to be, and how will you know what you want to be until you have some idea how what you are how it manifests in allowing you to be living an authentic life. And an authentic life is one that's lived with love, not hate. Positive thoughts, not negative self-talk. High sense of self-confidence, not constant negative browbeating oneself and in doubt and confusion because when all you have is doubt and confusion, you have barriers everywhere. You don't need a police force or a prison because your doubts, your fears, your conditioned self becomes the barriers that don't allow you to experiment, to experience, to feel, to connect with energies, to bring energies in, to share energies. Life becomes static, not transformative, but adaptive. So just think of how many stupid things you've done in your life, stupid things, and yet you're not stupid. How many things you've said to people, my God, what, what could have gotten you to say those things? Your conditioned self. So what do we do? Control it? No. No. Controlling that beast that's in us is to adapt. I don't accept that you're an alcoholic. I utterly reject the idea, I'm an alcoholic, I'm, I'm a drug addict. I'm, no, you're not. You made an inappropriate choice and there was a consequence to it. There's a consequence to every choice you make. You make the wrong choice, there's going to be a consequence. Why don't you stop long enough and stop trying to think about these things and examine how in the world did you make the choice? Don't look at the consequence. 
Consequence you can't handle, you can't control. You can never control what's going to happen to someone else getting back at you. All you can control is what you're going to do. But what, what you're going to do, what you're going to say, is itself controlled by your beliefs. So if you've never examined your beliefs, then you're not going to be able to control what you're going to do. All you're going to do is try to con constrain yourself or believe that you're dysfunctional. And therefore say, I'm an alcoholic. And the moment you say you're an alcoholic, you're saying, I'm a victim of the circumstances of my life. You're not. All you are is someone who made the inappropriate choice. Now examine how you made it, why you made it, and reverse the process. Go back. And if you go back at a certain point, you're going to see how it all came to you. And then you can say, ah. There is where I ended up using food as a replacement for love. There's where I ended up gossiping on the phone about other people because I was so insecure about myself. There is where I would use, you know, never being truly honest about anything because I didn't want to alienate myself. Uh, there is where, and suddenly you start seeing, my God, now I know I became an amalgamation of all this energy. I was too young. I didn't have the capacity to understand this. I'm merely an extension of all this dysfunctional beliefs. We like to think that you can't change your beliefs, that we have guilt and shame, fear and insecurity. The moment we go, we're blocked. That's how strong a belief is. No belief system is given to you unless it has the defense mechanism to keep you within it. Most belief systems are highly structured to keep the world out, you in. And it gives you what you think you need to feel good about the exchange, yourself for a belief. I say you are more significant than your belief. I say you're more significant than your relationship. I say you're more significant than your friends or children or career. I say that if you eliminated everything in your life except you, then you'd understand the significance of self. And then what you do in the way of friends or family or career, you'd be doing from a transformative mind. You'd look at the best that you can do, the best way of being a parent, the best friend you could be, choosing the career that honored you, living in the place that honored you, so there's either transformation or there's adaptation. So when you go back and you go in that apartment, you go through that neighborhood, you remember, no one puts a gun to your head and says you've got to live here. No one does. And you know what the first thing you're going to say in response? What? Well, I don't have the money to live, right? And you know how you're going to do that? Because automatically, for every time you go to take a step out, there is like an emotional minefields, thousands of them, saying, you can't. Oh, I can't. I can't. I'm, I'm, over, I'm over 40 and I'm a woman. I, I can't. Oh, I'm over 60. I can't. I, I can't. And there'll be a whole chorus saying, you can't. No, you can't. So don't try. Can I think about it? Well, depends. Depends on your belief. 
It depends upon how orthodox belief is. It depends upon how much of that belief you've made your life. In some beliefs, you can't even think about things without feeling guilty, right? Good boys don't think about that. Good girls never think about that. Okay, and then we feel guilt and shame for just having a, a thought. How absurd! My God, are we prisoners of our belief systems! And how many of those belief systems are universally true and loving? I don't know any. They all have strength and they all have weaknesses. They all have pluses and all have minuses. Just look at how many people have suffered and died because their religion wanted to save their soul. And yet we are not finding that we're strong enough to separate ourselves from what we shouldn't be. And I'm saying, now's the time to look at everything. And that takes quiet introspection. You can't be busy. You can't be distracting yourself. And most of our life is just a series of interconnected distractions, isn't it? We think that we're succeeding at life, but we get a whole lot done in a day, don't we? If we earn a certain amount of money, or if we do a certain amount of chores, or if we, we achieve a certain amount of things, that we're okay. No. No. <laughs> Quiet yourself. Go inside. Quiet. The quiet mind is the healing mind. The noisy mind is the diseasing mind. And we keep our mind chronically busy. Always thinking. Instead of quieting it. And then looking honestly. Looking non-judgmentally seeing these connections. And once you see a connection, you can detach from that connection. And then you can forgive it, and that energy's gone. Next, how do we respond to others when they discount or deny our realities? First thing we do when people discount our realities is we argue with them, right? We become defensive. As if we're going to prove to them. That's a big mistake. If all you're doing is trying to defend yourself with everything you do, you're not, you're not growing. You're not self-actualizing. Because the defense is the energy that stays connected with a person who doesn't believe you. And they're not asking you, explain yourself. Maybe I can understand something I didn't know before. You're a vegetarian or a vegan or all foodist. I didn't understand that. I'm a meat eater and, 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 and I'm a smoker and drinker and, and I think what I do is right and, and, and I thought you're a screwball, you know, a health nut, you know, and, and, and kind of weird and, and maybe that makes you a communist or gay. I, I don't know. Uh, so so uh, uh, tell me about you. Or they say, I'm not going to do this crap. What are you, crackpot? Crazy? We're not listening to what people are telling us because frequently the energy someone shares tells us whether they're going to be open. Did someone ask you to explain yourself so they can understand with an open mind? Or are they demeaning you? Because if they're demeaning you, all the words in the world are not going to make them open their mind. You cannot push a rope up a hill. You cannot open a closed mind. 
Long ago I realized that. When they said, when I was traveling across the United States and I was the lead debater in the United States, in fact I was only about one of three or four of us who were debating the dairy industry, the cosmetic industry. This is back in the 1970s, late 70s. So they'd say, well Gary, you know, if you had a degree in nutrition, you'd have more credibility than we could take you seriously. So I went back and I got a degree in nutrition. Well, you're talking about diet, you really have to have a degree in dietetics. So I got a degree in dietetics. Well, you have to have a PhD, all right? So I got a PhD with honors. Well, no, you got to be a scientist. Okay, I became a scientist. Well, you got to publish in peer-reviewed journals. So I published in peer-reviewed journals. Well, a lot of peer-reviewed, so I published a lot. Do original research, never been done, so I did that. And then one day they had no more hoops for me to jump through and they said, well, we're still not going to accept you. <laughs> I thought, well, I learned my lesson that I didn't have to do all I did in order to be accepted by people who are open-minded and nothing I did will be acceptable to people who are closed-minded. It's a game. The key to life is not playing in someone else's game. All the time we're trying to get accepted by someone, trying to make ours more presentable, more acceptable. And almost always to do that you have to adapt to the other person, right? Going out to dinner on the Upper East Side or Upper West Side. Upper East Side they're talking about fashions. Upper West Side, deep intellectual conversations. Do you ever laugh? No, serious people do not laugh because then you wouldn't take us seriously, would you? Hmm. <laughs> well, what do you do? We just, we're serious. We wake up serious. We watch French films early in the morning. You know, where they have the cigarette and the, the cup of coffee and as if that's all they eat all day, just that. And, and uh, we contemplate. What do you contemplate? And you start realizing, my God, these people are highly pretentious, but most people are pretentious. It's all stupid, isn't it? But they're proud of this. Why are they proud? Because they're accepted. They're recognizable. Can you be two things? Can I be Republican, Democrat simultaneously? No. Can I be happy and sad? No. Positive and negative? No. Constructive and destructive? Absolutely not. Can I be honest and a liar? One or the other. Well, gee, boy, we made everything black and white real quick, didn't we? Can I be African American and Caucasian? No. But aren't we all part of the human race? Yeah. Well, if you're the black race and you're the Jewish race and, 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 and I'm an native American race, we're all different. Well, our skin, our beliefs, but what if you didn't, what if you looked at our heart? What would you see? What if you opened our arms and let us bleed? Well, we have yellow blood and black blood, mulatto blood, Jewish blood, how would you know? Isn't all this adaptation? Sure it is. Because in the end, aren't we all part of the human race? But boy, is that the last thing we want. Because we lose our identity. Because we take our identity from what we've adapted to. And what we've adapted to is our beliefs. And our beliefs want to defend us. So we don't want to get thrown out. I mean, my God, go to Connecticut. Everybody's name's Buffy and Biff and Muffy. And they're blonde and anal. 
And they have no rhythm. Do you ever watch them dance? If they're from Connecticut, they're kind of like this. Like watching a zombie dance. No rhythm because can't have rhythm be taken seriously. It's all stupid, isn't it? During the feminist uh, movement, which I wrote for and about, the one thing I noticed was lacking was spiritual feminist. Like they weren't hard enough. Got to be hard. Polemics. Ideology. I said, no. People are not going to change because of that. You may change laws, you will not change hearts. It is the heart energy that changes other people. And we're not using heart energy. We're not using spiritual energy. If that were the case, we'd have no anti-Semitism, no racism today because we have laws against it. The fact we have laws doesn't change people's behavior. It only changes to the degree that they can exhibit that behavior without consequences. So we therefore tolerate but don't accept. I would rather have us accept the wonder and uniqueness of each person without the fear that a law is the reason I have to do it. If the law is the only reason you're honest, it means you're primarily dishonest and constrained. But what would happen if we took all the windows out of all the stores and told them they wouldn't be arrested for stealing? There'd be nothing left in any store, and we all know that. We put Martha Stewart in prison for one crime only. What was the only crime she was found guilty of? Lying. Lying. How many of you would be out of jail and never sent to jail? <laughs> Everyone in this room would have had multiple life sentences because everybody lies. But we made her the exception, didn't we? What, she's suffering for our sins? And the hypocrites in the media, the dysfunctionals, the angry people project upon her, and all they're doing is projecting what they hate about themselves upon this woman. She was wrong to lie, but if you put everyone in jail, there'd be no one left out. Everywhere you look, you see the game of adaptation. How many soldiers have fought in conflicts that they never asked the, the, moral, the moral imperative of the conflict, the ethics of the conflict? Just, they're going to go fight because they were told to. Everywhere we look, we're merely creatures of adaptation, and that causes consequences. I want you to be to where you're looking at what you're doing and asking why. What you're thinking and asking why. Then it all has a history. Don't be afraid to be the anthropologist of your own psyche. Dig into this psyche, just like an archaeologist, and look for where it began and forgive it. Next, how do we encourage function or dysfunction within our lives and relationships? If you're doing anything it's functional, it's because you've chosen it to be functional. If you're doing anything dysfunctional, it's because you've chosen it. Shouldn't we pay attention to what the rewards are for function and dysfunction? And if we don't, then no one's going to tell us to stop the dysfunction or bring it to our attention. And if we're not open to it, we're just going to continue doing the same thing. I know people who go into health food stores, buy their vitamin C, and go home and have coffee. Doesn't make any sense, does it? A little good, a little bad. Why not all good? A little happy, a little sad. Why not all happy? 
because we believe that if things go wrong, we should be sad about it, upset about it, right? Why not look at something and say, gee, that cancer isn't on my breast is, is not a noun, it's not a thing, it's a verb. I'm cancering because I processed it. After all, I did all these things that were inappropriate over a period of time, and this is the accumulation of it. I gave the wrong energy through the colas and through the fats and, the, and, and all of the chemicals and electromagnetic pulses, and so the final process is this reward. I got, I got a wake-up call. Thank goodness I was given a wake-up call. Now I can do something about it. Now it's got my attention. Isn't it amazing? The only time you ever get your full and undivided attention is when you're in a crisis. How many times has someone chosen a stroke, a heart attack, amputation of a limb from diabetes, macular generation blindness? They chose that and would not learn from their crisis and instead played the victim. Even their crisis wouldn't give them a lesson. So the universe gives it to them. Just remember this, if you do not choose your lessons and the tests that come with them, the universe will give you a lesson and more likely than not you'll fail it. And failure will be loss. Loss of your relationship, loss of your job, loss of your health, loss of your friendship, you'll lose something. And then we're given another chance to pay attention. And we either pay attention or we'll suffer another lesson. And the reason that you're here is because you've had multiple lessons and multiple crises. So why haven't we paid attention and looked at the nature of our crisis? Unless we're willing to look at the nature of our crisis, we're not going to learn how we could change our crisis. And I believe, I know, that every crisis can be transformed into a healing. Every crisis can be transformed into an enlightenment. And it starts with me being aware of it. And the only way I can be aware of a crisis is to be present for it. And be present for it, I have to be non-judgmental, stay present, and say, okay, something's not working. What's not working? All right. I've got bills. What kind of bills? I've got a lot of credit card bills. The average American, $18,000. Okay. I don't want any more bills. It's creating too much stress and it's diminished the quality of my life. What is the lesson of my crisis? That I bought things I shouldn't have. So okay, I'll learn. I'm only going to buy things I need. I'm going minimal. So if I absolutely don't need it, I'm not buying it. Good. I've learned a lesson from my crisis. Okay, I'm going to start saving. No matter what, I'm going to save. All right, that's a lesson from my crisis because I wasn't saving. All right, I'm going to appreciate how good I feel with the gifts I already have without having to seek something else to feel good because a lot of things I bought were bought to make me feel good. But once I had them, I, I didn't feel good. I mean, think of all the clothes that you have that you really don't wear, right? And then you have to ask yourself, why in the world did I buy that? Well, in the moment you bought it, you thought you needed it. So you created debt to have it. Now you look at it and you don't wear it, but you still keep it around because you don't want to throw it away because it costs money. But what you've do done, you're allowing this accumulation of debt 
because of this insatiable thing that we buy and spend. We're not at all financially responsible in our country. Not with a $7 trillion debt. We're not responsible nationally, locally. We're not responsible at all. And when people are responsible, we look at them almost with fear because why don't you have what we have? I don't need it. Yeah, I mean, but you got to watch television. No, I don't. You got to. I mean, that's our culture. Yeah, I'm, I'm choosing not to have that part of my culture. All right? Yeah, but I don't see you, I don't see you wasting time on the telephone a lot. Well, I don't have a lot to say. And I really don't want to be on the phone unless there's something that I want to hear that's unique. Yeah, but what if, what if you just want to talk? Well, how much of my talk or other people's talk to me is just nervous chatter, meaningless, has no constructive purpose? I wouldn't mind at the beginning of the year they put a computer chip in the brain that said you have a rational number of words you can say. So you better think about what you say. So if you want to talk to me, think. It better be something you haven't said before. I don't like repetition. And it better be relevant. I don't like irrelevancy. We'd have a very quiet world. And most people would talk themselves out in about the first two weeks of the year. Well, just ask yourself, how many conversations have you had that have gone on and on and on and on and on and on and on, ended up with nothing, nothing. Well, that meant someone took your time because there was something that it replaced. It replaced the moment you were in. Someone didn't value that moment, and you didn't value it because you gave it away. Well, you didn't have the moment then. So if you didn't have the moment, what did you have? You had someone's nervous energy that you were connected to wasting your time. And we have this fetish in our side about, we got to talk. You ever hear that? we got to talk. And when, you, when someone says, we got to talk, you know that there's a negative energy behind it. Because what they're really saying is, we're not communicating. All to the contrary. To absolutely the contrary. Everybody communicates. You just don't like what someone's communicating. If someone agreed with you, then suddenly you'd say, we got great communication. Alright? Watch how quickly people agree. When they agree with you, you say you're communicating. When a kid, you say, take out, take out the garbage. An hour later, take out the garbage. Later that night, take out the garbage. And then you scream at the kid. Kid says, what are you yelling for? Because you're not listening to me. Wrong. The kid heard you each time. What you're not paying attention to, the kid chose not to honor you. Because the kid didn't like what you were saying, didn't connect with it. You needed the kid to connect, because had the kid come down, taken out the garbage, you said, fine, we communicate. Our government doesn't listen to us, does it? Wastes billions and hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars, things don't benefit us at all. Huh? Very seldom do people actually listen to us and hear what we're saying and honor it. What a different world it would be if people honored what we were trying to share with them. But how often do we share something that's meaningful? If at a certain point all you do is just nervous chatter, ba 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 then when you do say something meaningful, people won't know it. 
because they're just kind of on tune out. Have you ever been in a car and someone just won't shut up? Did you ever just say, shut up? <laughs> well, what's wrong with you? Well, there's nothing wrong with me. What's the wrong is I don't want to hear your conversation. Well, if I'm not going to be around someone like that. <laughs> I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to ask myself, am I being balanced or imbalanced in the energy I'm taking in? Because remember, the energy you take in, you become. So if you're around doubtful people, you become doubtful. Toxic people, you become toxic. Depressed people, you become depressed. Intense people, you become intense. Loving people, you can become loving. Joyful people, joyful. That's why we should be more selective in the people that we're around because what do we want? Go back to my original question. What do you want? There's a consequence to wanting that. Now put your energy into it because when you visualize it, you give it life. When a passion puts it out there, you have a chance to connect with it. So it takes vision and passion, discipline and mastery. And now you're honest about something. You're saying, this is what I want and why and what I hope to have from this and I'm willing to commit myself. Just like when Bannister did the four-minute mile, he had to want that. He had to visualize it. He had to put it in his mind. He couldn't have just gone out for a run one, run one day and run a four-minute mile. But he believed in himself. You cannot achieve anything you do not believe in. So your belief in yourself is what stimulates you into connecting with what is possible. And anything is possible if you believe in it. And you have to believe in yourself because it is the extension of yourself. It's the energy that extends. So if I believe I can do something, it will get done. I didn't go to school to be a broadcast journalist. I didn't go to school to be a writer. I didn't go to school to be a cinematographer or a director. I didn't go to school to be an environmentalist or a human rights advocate. I didn't go to school to be a feminist. Well, gee whiz. Surprise, surprise, I did all of the above. But had I listened to all the people growing up in West Virginia, I'd just be working at O'Ames Shovel Factory because they didn't believe. Not only did they not believe, they weren't even willing to fantasize. That's how controlled that belief system was. So I suspended the power my belief system had over me, and I believed in me, even when no one else did. So many years in this health movement, and I was in it when nobody believed in it. It was laughed and ridiculed and mocked. Well, it's not today, is it? It's one of the most powerful forces in America, the health movement, because it's legitimate and it can help change and save lives, just like the human potential movement and spiritual movement. They're vital, a vitalism, because we transformed the crisis of confidence in who we were not into believing in who we could become, and we became that. Don't look at all the people who have boring, limited, in-the-box lives. Don't look at people who are as confused as you are. Don't look at people as, who are as angry as you are, as fat as you are, as as desperate as you are, look at the people who are not. Learn the lesson of people who've transformed their life because they have opened the door for you. 
All those people who followed Bannister followed his energy. If they didn't know about Bannister, there still wouldn't be no four-minute mile. The person who transforms their crisis is the person who opens the door for everyone else to learn from that crisis. But if all you do is adapt to your crisis, adapt to your pain, adapt to your circumstances, adapt to your race, adapt to your beliefs, adapt to your tribes and groups and clubs and sororities and fraternities and guilds and neighbors, if all you do is adapt, then where in the world is the uniqueness of your life going to express itself at its deeper, more meaningful level? It won't. Every person in this room has uniqueness. Find it. Master it. Honor it and share it. That's what we're here for. Backing your way through life and trying not to make mistakes does not create a legitimate legacy. We have enough people who've never committed themselves to social change or stood up against tyranny. The vast masses have never learned the lessons of the active minority. Isn't it interesting? It's always the tiny, active, self-actualizing minority that has raised the larger mirror to the psyche of the majority. It was the minority that got us out of the Vietnam War. It was the minority that got civil rights. It was the minority that got the human rights, that got us apartheid ended. It was a minority always. Minority always is where you find your transformational processes because they're not afraid to stand up and stand out. And you can't do either until you're willing to ask the real question and connect with the answer. Thank you very much.